welcome to episode four of Solidarity Cast. I'm your host, Elle Mick. This is a podcast where I try to find lessons from history to help us navigate our craven new world. For this episode, I read about the Chinese Civil War of the 1860s. You may have learned about it, if you learned about it at all, under the moniker Taiping Rebellion, but that's a bit the War of the North's aggression-ish. Anyway, the book is called Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, China, the West, and the Epic Story of the Taiping Civil War by Stephen R. Platt. Mr. Platt does write this story epically. The prose here is so good, while I was reading it, I could easily envision it as an HBO series. He goes into tremendous detail without it feeling like someone narrating a timeline. And even as a big picture kind of gal, I got super sucked into it. The Daily Beast soundbite, I don't think that's the right word, whatever the blurb on the back of the cover is, calls it compelling and meticulous, things I previously thought were pretty much mutually exclusive. So, if you like your war stories with a touch of philosophy and some poetry, I highly recommend this. There is a lot going on here. What Platt seems to focus on is the foreign interference, a theme that feels particularly timely. Anyway, Platt argues that the two sides of the Civil War, the Qing Dynasty versus the Taiping, were roughly equally matched in that it was the meddling of foreigners, most importantly the Brits, that determined the ultimate outcome. Just a brief note before I get started, um, my palate hardened well before I attempted to try any Chinese, so I'm not going to be able to pronounce these names, whether they be people's names or cities' names, anything close to the way I know that they're supposed to be pronounced. I know I'm doing it wrong. Mia Copa. As always, some historical context. The Qing Dynasty were not ethnically Chinese. They were Manchu, which was from north of China. Um, they conquered China in the 1700s. And the Qing never identified with the Chinese, even though they ruled over them for over 200 years. The Qing kept their own written language and culture was distinct from the Chinese. They didn't try to assert any of their traditions on the people that they ruled. And they were careful to allow the Chinese to continue keeping up with their own traditions. In fact, they adopted the Confucian exams as a means of entrance for civil servants. That was probably more out of laziness than any sort of respect for Chinese tradition. It was easier than coming up with a new method of picking who would be your government bureaucrats. But in 1851, the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom was founded by Hong Zhuquan. He named himself the Heavenly King, and that's how I will refer to him throughout. The Heavenly Kingdom was Christian, and the Heavenly King believed he was Jesus Christ's brother. His cousin, Hong Rengyan, was a translator for missionaries in Hong Kong. So the rebellion begins in 1851 and has some successes. They conquered Wuchang and Nanjing, making Nanjing their capital. The government gets a little freaked out and tasks one of its top civil servants, Zhang Guafan, with organizing a militia to counter the Taiping. They sent him to his home province of Hunan to do so. This was contrary to their own policy. See, in order to prevent challenges to their government, they would not send civil servants to work in their home provinces where they might curry more favor and possibly pose competition to the dynasty's control. But that's how desperate they were here. So Zhang Guafan goes home and raises a militia, and does so in a very clever way. He taps people he knows and tells them that they can only bring in people that they directly, personally know. The men were directly responsible for the individuals they recruited. 
you were responsible to people that you intimately knew, and it reported up the chain like that. So the end result was a very disciplined force. They still weren't enough of a force to totally destroy the Taiping uprising. That's how strong the uprising was. So that's the domestic backdrop of the war. You have an imperial power thinking that they're better than the population they have conquered and have been lording over for hundreds of years versus the people's desire to govern themselves. Tale as old as time, if you're using the American clock. So what about the international front then? Well, China had their butts handed to them by the British in the Opium War and were responsible for handing over Hong Kong, opening up more ports, and paying dearly in reparations. Contrary to what we were probably all told in middle school, China wasn't wholly closed off to the West. They were always involved in trading. They had most of the best stuff, you know, silk, tea, opium. But they were pretty selective and restricted. I mean, after all, they had the best stuff. So Britain forced that back a bit. Hong Kong became an international city where foreigners and the Chinese intermixed. Cultures were exchanged along with goods. China gave the West Confucianism, while in return, they gained the twin pillars of Western society, the teachings of Jesus, and a better way to kill people. See, while the Chinese were credited with creating gunpowder, they pretty much just used it for fireworks and dramatic displays. They still engaged primarily in hand-to-hand combat with swords. That's why they were so handily defeated by the Brits. Interestingly, Britain and France at this time also decided to war with the Qing dynasty. You'd think the whole the enemy of my enemy is my friend thing would apply and they'd either help the Taiping or just get out of their way. But you'd be wrong. Technically, the British were neutral during this uprising. Technically. Amazingly, it seems there was a handful of guys who really mucked things up for the Taiping here. Or at least that's how Platt tells the story. What's interesting about this is that there doesn't need to be some whole hog conspiracy with masterminds playing 11-dimensional chess to completely fuck up a tense situation in a country. That didn't happen here. What we had here was a couple of racists who had really strong feelings that they didn't shut up about, and also a guy whose allegiances changed based on wherever the money was coming from. Jesus, where have I heard that before? But it feels strange as hell telling the story of the Taiping Civil War by focusing primarily on the white dudes who fucked it all up. Especially since, if you learned about this thing at all, you learned about the so-called heroes from the West who swooped in to save civilized China. I don't think it's any better to tell the story of a bunch of selfish jerks who fucked things up for an organic movement because of racism and money. But that is what this story is about. I mean, that's what most of our stories are about, isn't it? So I've been struggling with how to approach this episode. I feel like casting the Westerners as the villains is just as imperialistic as saying that they were the heroes, especially when they're really just stooges here who blundered around to turn the tide of the war for the dynasty. You see, a few years into this war, the Taiping movement actually managed to gain more and more followers and started winning more important battles and taking more and more land. And it's unlikely that this happened because the average Chinese villager felt Christianity really spoke to them. Rather, they looked around and realized that their lives were better after the Taiping rolled through. 
While both sides were incredibly violent and this was a very bloody war, it seems like the dynasty had more of a scorched earth approach, destroying villages after they went through, whereas the Taiping tried to limit utter destruction and also hoped to improve the lives of the peasants afterwards. In fact, the peasants in the Taiping-controlled areas told foreigners that their lives were actually better after the Taiping took over. Unfortunately, the letters that reported this back to England, for some reason, took much longer to arrive than the letters touting both sides as being barbarians of equal capacity for evil. So while I don't want to approach this talking about the white guys when it's China's war, there does seem to be an argument that if not for foreigners sticking their noses where they didn't belong, the Taiping could have won this thing, changed the course of history. But that still doesn't help me figure out how to approach this with the attention it deserves. The problem is, is that if I approach it from the perspective of the Chinese figures, it's really just a, a war story. It's a great war story, but... Um, that's not really helpful for what I'm trying to get at with this podcast. There's a way to tell this story as a conflict between a very successful Confucian scholar and two cousins who tried and tried and tried and failed and failed and failed to move up in the Confucian exams. The Heavenly King and Hong Yun tried many times to work up the hierarchy of the government exams. This might be why the Heavenly King went out and formed his own religion, because he just couldn't cut it. That's complete speculation on my part. Hong Rangin did a bit better, but couldn't break into the upper echelons either. And he was shrewder than his cousin. He refused to supplant Confucianism with Christianity. And when he joined his cousin in Nanjing to um, really be a part of the movement, one of the changes that he made was he refocused the movement so that it wasn't against Christianity. In fact, he even argued that Confucian himself was a Christian. Not like literally, but... In his works and deeds and words, he acted and comported himself as a good Christian would. So you have those two who tried so much and failed up against Zhang Guafan, who was an excellent Confucian scholar. He just rose up the ranks, aced every test. He was a genius. He was actually very concerned about having to lead an army because he was a scholar, not a general. But he figured out how to be smart about it. He never felt that he was good enough, though, which is also an interesting contrast. The the cousins, the Heavenly King and Han Rangin, both sort of punched above their weight class. Whereas Zeng Guafin, he never felt he was good enough. Um, he talked about suicide very frequently. Although, as an aside, it meant something different in China back then. It was honorable to commit suicide instead of allowing yourself to be killed. So often soldiers would commit suicide when the opposing army was encroaching and it looked like the writing was on the wall. It also was more honorable than, you know, bringing shame to your family. 
So uh, Zeng Guafan never felt he was good enough, ever, to the point where when he kept winning, and he kept winning, and he kept persevering, and he won, he won conflicts that he shouldn't have won. He just didn't give up. After the emperor dies, the new government is run by his five-year-old son, so not really him. His mother, actually, was the regent and probably controlled shadow government kind of thing. They tried to bestow more and more honors on Zhang Guafan. And this was done probably not out of, oh, thank you, you're such a devoted servant, um, but more out of, please like us and don't try to run us out of town and control China yourself. Um, but Zhang Guafan, he constantly rejected these honors because he felt he wasn't good enough, because he felt he didn't thoroughly, you know, win. And so, yeah, there's a way to tell this story between, you know, as a battle between those two kinds of personalities. And that's actually a very interesting approach to it, but that really feels like it falls way outside of this podcast's mission. But it really doesn't help me figure out how to deal with Cittellini. That feels like the big story from the perspective of the Chinese actors, or at least how Stephen R. Platt tells the story. That seems to be the big story. I'd rather not give more time and thought to white dudes in history than has already been done. Um, so I'm really, I'm actually not going to go into the great detail of how much and in what way the foreigners interfered. Um, Stephen R. Platt does describe it in great detail. Like I said, it's a good book. It's an interesting read. But again, I, I don't feel right doing that in the story while at the same time acknowledging that their role plays a very big part. I don't want to give them more airtime. So that's how I'm dealing with my personal conflict on this. On the other hand, talking about foreigners sticking their noses in it may not be helpful either because it's already happened. What is there left to learn from it? Maybe just a matter of we forgot that this is always a play, that our world is smaller than we think it is, or we never quite realized or thought about it, that of course foreign countries have interests, actual direct interests in what happens to us. Because if any, even just money, just money. Um, there's not a single country in the world that is completely self-sufficient. And that has always been the case. We've always needed trade of some kind to have our needs met. So yeah, you may not care who sits in the seat of government, but you do care about how much you have to pay for your tea. So I guess what I'm saying here is I'm not sure if there's very much to garner from this topic or at least I'm struggling with it now too much. I might need to just marinate on this longer, revisit it, or I could just trudge along and see if I could pull something out of this. <laughs> oh. Anyway, so Britain at the time, you know, they, their two main markets were China and the U.S., so when China first started their war, because they started first, Britain had a policy of neutrality, but they didn't really need to, this 
didn't need to be challenged that much. However, when the U.S. war broke out, this was a big deal for Britain. They could afford one of their major trading partners going to war and imploding on itself, but they couldn't afford both of them to do so at the same time. The Chinese were the predominant buyers of cotton and wool. They would also lose their source of tea, which was a very big deal. While Britain also maintained that they would be neutral in in both matters, that really ended up not being the case. In fact, they classified the Confederacy as belligerents, essentially noting that, that there were two powers in the U.S. and having a policy of neutrality between the two powers. So they didn't treat the Confederacy as an uprising. They treated it as a legitimate possible government, depending on who won the war. Um, they didn't recognize it as a separate country per se, but they did recognize it as having some legitimacy. This enabled them to continue trading with them. With China, they were technically neutral, but at the same time, they did not recognize the Taiping as belligerents. They only recognized one legitimate power in China, and that was the dynasty. They didn't really have to have a neutrality policy because there was only one state in power in China, and that was the Qing dynasty. This enabled them to trade arms with the dynasty because they weren't choosing sides because there was only one side. Yet at the same time, Britain maintains that they were neutral throughout. There's a lot of cognitive dissonance there. They claim to be neutral, but then also said there's only one side, so then what are you being neutral between? They actually slaughtered Taiping soldiers when they came into Shanghai. That was actually because the guy in charge refused to read the letter that was sent from the Taiping army's general. Um, the letter said, hey, we're coming, but we're not going to touch a foreigner. We're not going to hurt a foreigner's property. Just put something out so we know foreigners live here and we'll skip over that house like Passover. But the, the Brit refused to read it, just tore it up and threw it away. So when the Taiping came in, they were completely gunned down and slaughtered. And that was justified as the British were protecting their property and the lives of the Brits inside Shanghai. So this whole concept that they were neutral really is inaccurate. They like to tell themselves that they were being neutral. But then they also did weird things that counterintuitive things like going to war with the Qing dynasty. In fact, they went into Beijing, burned down the summer palace. The emperor fled and actually never came back. He ended up dying. So they had this very unfocused approach to the situation, which I think largely happened because they had the guys on the ground there. A lot of them just didn't like the Chinese. And remember at the top, I said the Manchu were not Chinese. All of their interpretations of what occurred came under through the lens of this racism. The other problem was communication was just so damn slow. By the time we got back to Britain that, hey, you know, the Taiping want to be our friends. They promise safe passage for foreigners. They're not going to fight with us. They want to open trade. You know, by the time that word gets back, 
It's been months after the Taiping soldiers have been slaughtered outside of Shanghai. They also just didn't have a lot enough differing views there on the ground. So they, they got a very sort of one-sided report about what was happening. It took a very long time to even get the information, so their information was old. And then they just didn't act on it well. This is true on all sides of the situation. It's true the king's army, it's true of the Taiping soldiers, and it's true of the foreigners in China. Everybody ignored their orders. I think this comes from just, it was physically such a huge landmass that you could defy, directly defy your orders and what, what's going to happen to you. It's going to take three months for anyone to physically get to you to punish you. And that's three months through war-torn areas. No one was following orders. Everyone was just sort of reacting on the ground to what they were seeing directly in front of them. Or they had their own agenda that they were following. And their agenda could have been based on plot information or biased ideas and delusional thoughts even. So there is no logic to the situation on the ground there. I mean, I'm not a war scholar. I feel like that should be obvious at this point. But I feel like you can look at what happened with the battles and the movements of armies during either of the world wars and you could say, okay, I see why Hitler thought that was the move to make. I see what he was getting at. You can't do that as much with this war because there wasn't centralized power really on any side. There was technically, there was a spot that was in control. There was Beijing, there was Nanjing, and there was London. But none of those places actually had control over what was going on in Anjing. So I guess the lesson we can learn from this is the importance of having a cohesive plan and an infrastructure that sticks to it. And thinking about this bolsters my confidence. Should we actually end up taking preemptive steps against North Korea, especially seeing how competent and successful this administration was in Yemen? Yeah. I guess the other thing we can learn from this is not to underestimate foreign influence in large political movement. Like I said, the this was only, there was really only a couple of dudes from the West on the ground screwing this up. Um, I'm purposely not naming them in my hopes that that sort of helps it be less a story about white dudes while I'm trying to talk about the Chinese Civil War. It doesn't need to be some big, large conspiracy for it to have effect. It's probably even easier now, you know, with hacking in the internet. You can do it from your couch with your computer. But it was even true back then. I guess it's always true that whoever can control information can control what happens. There was just a couple of foreigners in China that were sending word back to Parliament and basically controlling what was going on just by deciding how to couch things or delaying sending letters. It was as simple as that. So I guess that's an important thing to keep in mind. 
regardless of the outcome of any sort of investigation into Russia's involvement in the 2016 election, we really cannot forget that foreigners have a vested interest in what happens here. We have a vested interest in what happens in other countries. It dictates our a lot of our policies. It dictates a great deal of our budget, whether it's humanitarian aid or the war budget. And that all comes down to us caring about what's going on in another country. And it's naive to think that other countries don't have the will or ability to get involved in the same way that we have. I mean, we have put people in power. We have actually legitimately done that. I mean, we talked about the CIA putting the Shah back in Iran. And with us being, for now, still at least the richest, most powerful country in the world, others actually have have more of an interest in keeping tabs on what we're doing and trying to affect outcomes than we do in their worlds, you know? We just don't think about that. I also want to, at this time, address whether it's fair for us to be pissed off about Russia's interference in the election if that's what actually happened. I don't really think it's necessarily hypocritical of us. I mean, are we mad at Russia or are we mad at our fellow citizens that aided Russia? I'm mad at the Americans that may have been involved. I expect this from Russia. I don't expect this from fellow citizens. Also, it's not that we have any say in what the CIA does. We really do not. I don't even know who really has say what the CIA does because they're, I mean, technically they're part of the executive branch, but I don't know how much control the president has over them. We definitely, you know, all that being said, we definitely need to hold our elective officials to account more on foreign interference. I think this past generation, we have sort of taken a back seat when it comes to issues of war. War used to be something that the whole entire country was involved in. If you weren't overseas fighting, you were helping the effort at home. After World War II, that stopped being the case. And because of that, it became really easy for all of us here at home to just not be so bothered about it. I think it's time that we take the momentum and the activity that we've been applying to domestic issues and start applying that to to foreign interference. Should we be spending that kind of money? Why are we talking about starting a war with North Korea? What's to be gained from that? And is it something that we want to gain? Do we really think that they actually have any sort of nuclear capabilities? Shouldn't we be more concerned with their starving population? Or should we just not get involved? We need to take the same energy that we've used in protesting and encouraging our elected officials to not confirm nominees or trying to save regulatory organizations, we shouldn't forget to apply that also to any suggestion of going to war. And we should also try and get some information on what non-war activities we're doing in foreign countries. And, and this story shows us how just little it takes to dramatically affect the situation on the ground. I've said this so many times now, if you're playing a drinking game at home, take a shot. There's only a couple of guys here who really 
messed up the situation. We're cutting humanitarian aid, but we still probably got a couple of guys in most countries. And what are they saying and what are they doing? And shouldn't we be more thoughtful about that and ask our elected officials about that? Yeah, so this is a much better story than the way I have told it. Far better. So if you listened this far, congratulations. I applaud you. Um, As always, you can email me comments, questions, criticisms at SolidarityCast at Gmail. Hit me up on Twitter at SolidarityCast. Find me on iTunes. If you've noticed, I have new theme music. That is courtesy of Travis Johnson and Grooms, so thank you very much. He probably also massaged the sound a little bit on this. And my hope is to get an episode out every two weeks. I'm not sure how realistic that is. I may need to go every three weeks, which is an odd timing thing. It's not quite months a month, but hopefully I will have more soon. Thanks for listening.